a negative connotation, depending on how you receive it or how it's said, honestly. So what? It's like, who cares? But there's another way in which we could and probably should understand that is if this microphone is not grounded, and I wouldn't really hurt, let's just say that the floor wasn't, something was wrong and there was electricity running through the building and wasn't grounded, and somebody goes, so what? They literally might be saying, so what's the consequence? What, what, what does that mean? What happens now? What, why is that important? Because if you step on it, it's going to buzz you. And not in a good way. It's going to burn you. It's going to electrocute you. And we learn a lot of things theologically, beloved. And I'll tell you, there's nothing wrong with learning things theologically. It's part of the Christian experience. When we read the Bible, we learn things theologically. We think about them. We ponder them. We meditate on them. We contemplate what they mean and what difference it makes. But, beloved, there's never a time when the Bible was ever meant to just be understood theologically in that academically we approach God is sovereign, that, okay, good. Next, God is light, okay, next. God is love, all right, good. Because without any implications of these things, they're really worthless knowledge. Now we can argue, you know, God in and of himself is worthy to be praised as the scripture teaches. But that in and of itself is also an implication of God's worthiness. If we're here today to worship God, we are worshiping because we are ascribing and proclaiming the worth that belongs to him. I want you to think about that for a second. That's what worship is. Worship is about not us feeling good about God or feeling good around God's people. Worship is about ascribing, proclaiming, telling God that we recognize and affirm His worth. Not that we have to, but it does something for us. So when the scripture says that God alone is holy, God alone is worthy, God alone is almighty, there is a question to be asked. And that question is, so what? Now what? What difference does that make? Why is that important? See, the, inquisit the, the inquisition of our minds, when we inquire further and, and decide that we're going to think about the application of what is taught to us in Scripture, when it's just theological, or for those of us who are students and have any kind of formal understanding of Theology is theology proper, the theology of God, the study of God proper, God himself as a being, as an essence. And where do we get our knowledge? We get our knowledge from the Bible, not from Tippins. We get our knowledge not from the books that have been written, but we get our knowledge from the Bible that has been given. Because the Bible alone is the source of revelation. No other place is the source of revelation. So if anything is said concerning God that's revealed in the Bible, it's secondary. It's James is saying something that's true according to the Bible, but the Bible is its source. I'm not the source. And so we test what we hear in light of what we read simply in the context of Scripture. And I say not just in the context overall of all 66 books, but in the context of the place where we think we find such things. And beloved, we, as we talked last week, are stewards. And of course, Timothy was an elder in Ephesus. Paul was an apostle, and Paul wrote this letter with an elder in mind. So this letter speaks to me very clearly, as does Titus and 2 Timothy. And then it also should speak to you so that you may also understand what it is elders are, what it is that they're responsible for, and then how you and I are supposed to relate to one another concerning this great big party we have every time we get together called the assembly. What's it for? So what? Because here's what's happened in our culture. And there's always a, a necessary need for reform, if I can use the term, where we find ourselves doing and being and thinking in a certain way that's so far outside of Scripture that we need to just reel it in a little bit. We need to reel it in a little bit. Now, I'm not saying we reel it in a little bit when we got heresies abounding. 
I'm talking about in how we understand, apply, and live Scripture. We get outside the boundaries. And we find that sometimes, you know, what we're doing is disruptive to that which Scripture calls us to do. For example, one of the things that we are strong on in our fellowship and will always be is that we're not going to develop programs and opportunities for ministry to where we have to assimilate people into them through interests. Now, if you do that in your life, that's perfect. I've played more billiards with young people in the world and in the church than I've taught Bible studies. I've shot at the range billions of dollars worth of things. You know, and, and some of you are laughing, but I mean, that's what it would cost in today's economy. I mean, you think, that's a joke. Nobody laughed like, oh man, he's bankrupt. <laughs> Billions of dollars of bullets. There's a lot of things. We've done martial arts, some of us, for a little season. Some of us has, have had, you know, Bible studies. Some of us have had theology classes. Some of us have had things that we enjoy doing that we do together. And as we are together, no matter what brings us together as God's people, Christ is the center of it all. We find ourselves at the range talking about Scripture and then going, oh, we came out here to shoot. We need to shoot. We find ourselves at whatever dealing with the things of Christ and helping one another in the way of life. Those are natural outcomes of intimacy. But, beloved, they're not to be programmed. They're not to be put in place. And now we've got to find somebody to do it. If God has called us to something, we will do it. We will do it. And then when God has called, I mean, how would you like to know that we had a ministry, an outreach ministry for martial arts? You ever seen something like that before? I don't want to talk about the nonsense of such a thing in the sense that that would be evangelism. Come over here, let me break your leg and tell you about Jesus. I mean, you know, that's not sort of the way it goes. But, I mean, imagine if we had that as an instrument. And that was... Something that the church depended upon, and then I decided, or the Lord decided, I could no longer do it. Which one of you will do it? Or we had a Greek class, and one of you are, uh, you know, a, a Greek scholar, and you, you understand it, not only in the original text, but also the grammar and everything, and, and you're teaching a class, and there's nobody else that can teach a class, and then the, there's 100 people coming to the class every Wednesday and then you get laryngitis and you decide you've got to retire and you cannot teach anymore or you die. Is the church supposed to find another Greek scholar to fill the class? No, the ministry's over. That, that connecting point is over. But you know what never ceases in the context of the, of, of the body of Christ? Is the mandated assembly of the saints once a week on the first day of the week. The mandated assembly. For the last two years, we have been in unprecedented waters as a country, unprecedented waters as a culture, unprecedented waters uh, in our own hearts and minds, and we've never thought these things before, seen these things before, experienced these things before, contemplated these things before, and so everything that we know as normative, we have had to what? We have had to rearrange it and change it. We've had to change the way we connect with each other. We've had to change the way we contact each other. We've had to change the way we reach out to one another. We've had to change the way we serve one another. And now that though we're not through with it, we've learned to adapt. And now we're coming to the place where people aren't, it's, you know, people aren't as uptight about things as they were. And so my life is coming back to a more normal pattern. I'm actually able to meet with people and talk with people and schedule. I had a full schedule last week. It was, it was amazing and tiring at the same time, but it was very fulfilling to oh, talk to this person, talk to this person, talk to this person, get it all there because people are now going, we're going to have to just keep moving. We're not, we thought we were in a short time holding pattern, but we're not. This is the permanent holding pattern called life. Well, beloved, we are going to have to ask ourselves, where's the constant? If we're learning things about the Lord and we're learning things about the truth of Scripture, where is the constant? And the constant is in the body, in the assembly. And there's no other constant. 
There's no other promise. There's no other opportunity because not all of us will ever like everything the others do all the time. So if we have to have other things, if we have to have affinities and interests in order to have intimacy, we've missed the point of the gospel, right? Why are we commanded to get together on Sunday morning? Because it is for our joy, it is for our instruction, it is for our correction, it is for our training to do the work of the ministry. As you look around this room and you see the other faces here, these are real lives, real souls who have been saved by the grace and the mercy of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And they depend upon you. And you depend upon them. And your best ministry, your best ministry for one another is to pray for one another by name, specifically. And even if you never become besties, beloved, your siblings, purchased by the blood of Christ. And God has promised us together, when we come together and we hear the word, we are to be stewards of this word. We're to take what is not ours and to take care of it. And then we're to take care of one another. And we're to look after each other's interests, not just our own, but each other's interests. And that's not the busybody mindset that so many people have. I'm going to dig my nose into somebody else's sin or lives so that I can find something wrong. It's how can I serve you? And we all have callings, and we all have gifts, and we all have special talents, and we all have intimate ways in which we express ourselves that are unique to us. And God has established His church to be put together as He determined for the sake of the upbuilding of each member therein. And without that understanding, beloved, this teaching, standing here every week and teaching, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have, it, so what that we come to church? So what that we gather together? This is why we do it. It's not for us to get a theological lecture. It's not for us to go home and take notes and go, okay, I can add that to my category of knowledge and feel good about it at my dinner table by myself in my recliner. No, it's about preparing us to do the work of the ministry. I mean, has anybody in here ever been in need of ministry and the body of Christ was there? Was the whole church there? Was every single person there? No. That's annoying. Man, I broke my leg. I need some help washing the dishes and 100 people show up to wash six cups and a plate. Thanks for tearing up my lawn like a bunch of goats getting out. I mean, you know, we don't want to make a mess of things, but, but when one comes, when one person ministers to another, the body itself has ministered. When one of us is together with the other, Christ is with us. And that's the point. So when we hear this stuff and when we learn these things, nobody is being charged in the congregation today to deal with false teachers. Not one human being under the sound of my voice that's sitting in these chairs is being charged to deal with false teachers except the elders of this church. Paul didn't tell Timothy to get the church to do the things he told him to do. Paul told Timothy to teach other men to be elders to do the things he taught the elders to do. Because we've got bigger things to do. More important things to do. You know, I, my father's retired from law enforcement after like 43 years. And the one thing that I guarantee if you were standing here and could attest to this, I promise you one of the most aggravating aspects of that job is when he was doing his job at a crime scene and a civilian came in and tried to do it better. What, Jeremy, you can... <laughs> yeah, there you go. So we've got a Leo in here. I mean, you know, you, you... Get behind the tape, please. Please. Before I lock you up. <laughs> Maybe pastors need the power of arrest. <laughs> Make it easier, wouldn't it? That's it, time out. God has called us, and the reason we do it, the so what, the why, is so that we can grow together. Why is that important? So what? Why do we need to grow together? To the praise of His glorious grace. We can keep going. So what? Because He's worthy of all praise. So what? 
And then we're right back to the gospel, aren't we? So the stewardship includes the word of God, the ministry of the church, the handling of, 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 of obedience and understanding the commands of Christ, which is also known the doctrine of Christ. The teaching of Christ includes the commandments of Christ. Oh, goodness, y'all. We have, such, we have divided God into a pagan deity. We have divided our Lord and Savior into paganism by parsing him out into different things. That if we put them all together as a block, we have a God, and we take them apart, we have separate things. That's so silly. But we're to be stewards. Let's read again, starting at verse 3, all the way down through verse 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote their time to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, though, by swerving from these three things, have wandered into worthless discussion, talking about none, not nothing, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but it's laid down for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and hit their fathers and murder others, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. See, Paul automatically assumes a level of stewardship here. He's always writing, I have been entrusted. Now he's going to tell Timothy, you have been entrusted with a good deposit. With a good deposit. When we have, uh, sometimes the banks or some of the businesses around here on certain days, we'll have a police officer come and escort them to a deposit location. I guess the banks don't do it. The banks are receiving the deposits, but you know what I mean. And, 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 and so why do they do that? Because you've got all these other people's money, and you're driving around exposed. You're entrusted with a deposit that's not yours and you have to do something with it. You have to get it to this other location. The gospel is no different. The gospel is the story and the revelation of God himself and the redemption of his people through his son Jesus Christ, who is the eternal God of heaven, the creator of all things. And Paul would tell Timothy later, you've been entrusted with the gospel, this good deposit. Now I am entrusting you to teach it to other men who are reliable, who will grow in their understanding to look after the church of Christ in this same way. So really the ministry of the gospel is a ministry of stewardship from start to finish. None of it is ours. Our faith is not our own. Our, uh, the love of God is not something that we, that we grasp and, and, and take and put in our pocket. We have our own faith, of course, but you know what I'm saying. It's not from our own flesh. It's something that's granted to us. Repentance, the change of mind, the understanding of the Word of God. This is not something we've accomplished. This is something God has given. So it's a gift, and it's something that we need to realize that the name of Christ and the purposes of Christ and the gospel of Christ is a gift. And it is something that carries His name and His glory upon it. So we are stewards of this. It's not my redemption. I didn't redeem you, and now I can tell you all about the redemption that I have. I can't make you believe. It's not mine to, to use that way. We're stewards. Paul is a steward. I've been entrusted with the gospel. He'll say over there in, in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now see, I don't like Paul's use of word there because Paul had no idea that warfare would be a common household word in 2022. And that warfare would not mean like some of you brothers who have served and sisters who have served in war. You understand what warfare is, but for some of us, warfare is just a really hard day. 
And then we want to become soldiers and want to become tactical in our approach to Christian living. There's no room for that. <laughs> no room for that at all. We're not to be shooting people. We're not to be, and I mean, I'm not talking about literally. I'm talking about just spiritually. We're not to be hurting people. We're not to be exposing things. We're not, to, we're not at war. In a physical sense, we're at war. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6? In a spiritual realm. But, you may wage a good warfare. Holding, how do you do that? <laughs> Verse 19 tells us very clearly, and I'll get here in a couple of weeks, I promise. Holding faith and a good conscience. See, see, it goes right back to where he is over in verse 4 and 5. Holding a sincere faith and a good conscience. How do you do this? How do you wage warfare? By those two things. It's the devil's wickedness to make much of false teaching by telling everybody about the false teaching. Pointing everybody to the false teaching. Showing everybody the details of false teaching. It's blasphemous. It's wrong. And the church of Jesus Christ should not be in the practice of it. Nowhere in the scripture is the believer entrusted with that job. And the elders of the church are entrusted with that job. And they only have one way in which they handle it. And that is to teach the truth. And to charge those who don't teach the truth to stop so that they may rejoice in the unity of the faith. No more implications. No more distinctions. No more approaching. No more speculation. No more assumptions. No more murder. No more gossip. Blood, when we get through with these letters, it's going to be something. It's going to be something. Because we're going to have a clarity of what it means to really start to see what obedience in the life of the believer is. And people who won't teach obedience to the New Testament teaching are blasphemous. I'm going to say that word two or three more times today in specific detail. But don't listen to a preacher of grace who doesn't also teach you to do what the apostles tell the church to do. Because he's not doing what God commanded the elders to do. We cannot live this way. We are stewards. We are stewards of the word. We are stewards of one another. We are stewards of righteousness. Now think about that for a minute. Some here, it talks about being teachers. So I am a steward of God's word. Have I ever said it wrongly? You betcha. Have I ever made grave mistakes? Uh, I probably couldn't count them all if they were pointed out to me. And before it's all said and done, I'm going to make many more. Why? Because I think. I think. I'm a thinker. I ponder. I think. I make statements. I build propositions in my mind. And I say, therefore this. And if this is true, then so what? Okay, this is why. And I deal with all these things hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. When I say hours, that's not an exaggeration. Hours every week. I can guarantee you that at least 30 hours of my mind every single week are dealt with dealing with propositions. I've gotten into the habit now of using a tablet rather than napkins and scrap because years ago, at the end of the week, my pockets were full of trash, but it was actually notes. And then, and then I started using the little notebook. So the little notebook things are good. Robin bought me a few years ago this notebook that the pages are magnetic. How oh, beautiful. It's beautiful stuff. So there's never so much junk in there. But we do, we think, we think about these things. We come to the conclusions that we come to and then we start to lay them out and we go, oh, now this looks right, this looks right. And then we say things. But the teacher, the teacher that's mature waits. He doesn't get into the pulpit and posit his theories or his theological expressions because he came to those conclusions Thursday that's what I've done. I've done that before. And I'll probably do it again. Get really excited about something. And then all of a sudden come to find out that the way that was said actually is disputed according to the text. What does that mean about that teacher? That means he made a mistake. And what are we supposed to do about it? Inquire. Hmm. What you said. Did you mean this? And you know what a lot of times it, it is? It's an issue of clarity, but sometimes it's an issue of error, of flat heresy. 
a divided opinion, an untruth. Maybe it's just an historical thing that we've always held to that we really have never contemplated what it means today in 2022. And some of us have had those conversations over the last few years. But we grow in our stewardship. We grow by telling ourselves, okay, these are great epiphanies. But God is not in the business of giving epiphanies. God is in the business of securing that which he has already revealed. And so when I have my epiphanies, I have to chart it out through the text. Is what I just said in my head contextual? And when I say contextual, it has to be contextual. Not a verse here, verse here, a word here, a phrase here, a grammatical construction over here. It has to be in a teaching. Yes, we'll get to some of these ideas of inferences and things. We can make good assertions and confident assertions on things that the Scripture teaches, such as the Trinity. We've come up with that term, one in three. One God, there's only one God, and he has revealed himself in three distinct persons. There's not three distinct gods walking around the cosmos. It's one God. He's revealed himself in three persons. So what? So what? That's the way God revealed himself. So we need to understand that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not each other, but they are God. Fully, each of them. Collectively, God. You see? And when we start trying to express that in general terms or try to make it simple, we actually teach heresies. <laughs> and I'm guilty of it. I've found sound bites and went, there's some people getting all upset about nothing. If they heard that, that would have been it right there. That would have been it. That's a good one. That's a good one. Let's get, wait till that one comes up. So there is a time for that, but until we are sound in our understanding of what the Bible actually reveals, what's the point? What's the point of knowing about the triune God? We can thank God, our Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the Spirit who shows us the truth. This is our God who saved us. We can worship we can understand, we can relate to our God according to the Scripture. And we can share Him with others according to the Scripture. We don't have to explain it all. We just need to share it. We are stewards of a story that's not ours to change. We're stewards of a good report that's already been determined before there ever was anything to see it. But this aim, this charge, this teachers. People want to teach. We are all evangelists. We are all apologists. We will defend that which we hold to and we will share that which we love the most. That's why when we see people sharing every false teaching under the sun, it's what they love. They don't love Christ. They love the falsehoods. They love the knowledge of knowing the difference. And if that's not Gnosticism, I don't know. And if you don't know what that means, it doesn't matter. Beloved, we need to get to the simplicity of grace. God reveals himself and our faith is as little children. Little children. I mean, I could tell a story right now that could engage every child in this room and they would believe it. And it could be completely fabricated. Why? Because I stand in the visual representation of authority, so it must be true. When God teaches us about His redemption through His Son Jesus Christ for His people, our faith that He grants is childlike. We rest in it. Teachers. People want to be teachers. And some teachers are biblically qualified. How do we know what biblical qualification? We can go over to chapter 3 and we can go to Titus and we can look and we can also see other places in the Pauline epistles where people were disqualified, even in the book of Acts. And they were quickly restored or they were quickly removed. 
Some are biblically qualified. If a, te- if a person is not biblically qualified, they should not be teaching the Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean you don't share that. There's a difference, isn't there? If I share the Scripture that I read, and I share the Scripture that I study, and I share it with you, and then you can share with me, but if I hold you, over, if I hold you accountable to what I share as that which must be lived out, or discipline arises for the unity of the church, then I am teaching you. I've taken the position of an overseer, and not everybody's qualified to be an overseer. As a matter of fact, not everybody's called. While we don't want 100 people washing our dishes, we don't want 100 people teaching at the same time. Some are personally qualified, like these guys, Hymenus and Alexander. They're personally qualified. They've been studying. They knew. They've come to some conclusions. They've changed some things. John had some problems, too. Now, we're just not talking about doctrinal issues. We're talking about behavioral issues. Well, you know what? You don't have to, we, don't, we don't have to listen to that. We don't have to obey that. We don't have to obey the devil when he preaches the truth. No, we obey the Lord. Balaam's mule spoke the truth. If God... If God's word is spoken out of the mouth of a cat, we are subject to it. Despite the cat. Doesn't matter. The cat's just a servant. I'm just a servant. I'm just a slave. To proclaim the context of this scripture and be held accountable for it. Not to you. To, to God. I could be preaching in pretense and no one here would know. By the mercy of the Lord, I pray that he doesn't let me do that. Some are personally qualified in their own mind, in their own right. They're disqualified. And it's not good. They do not get and understand what they're teaching. They do not understand the damage of what they're teaching. They do not understand the implications. They don't understand the so what. And they think that right teaching, accurate information on a certain doctrinal position is more important than the other instructions of Scripture. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. In 2001, I told some men this, that I sinned before God and the body in the pulpit for seven straight weeks. Every week I sinned. And I knew it, and I kept on doing it. Why? Because I was preaching exactly what the scripture was saying. And I had no doctrinal error that I know of, at the, even now, at the time. But the heart in which I taught it, and the manner in which I applied it, and the anger through which I spoke it, was sin. So even the right doctrine in the wrong way at the wrong time is not okay. Elders have to have the discriminating Wisdom, that's called discernment, by the way, discriminating wisdom of knowing when and how to approach certain things in the context of the local assembly for the sake of the unity of the whole and most importantly, most importantly, most importantly, for the joy of the body at large, for their peace and comfort. So people that don't know what they're talking about, they're not qualified teachers when they teach and they hold people to listen to them They're abusing their conclusions. They afford no grace to the hearers who don't want to listen. They do not desire reconciliation. They have a law, they have a knowledge of law. But in their deeds and in their behavior, they know nothing. They make judgments concerning their understanding that is not from faith. It's speculation, it's assumption. Shepherds of the flock must be stewards of the flock, must be stewards of righteousness, must be stewards of the word of God, and must follow the careful instructions given in Scripture, and nothing more. Whatever is given in Scripture, the shepherds of the church should follow that instruction. 
So Timothy, I want you to charge these persons who are doing these things and teaching these things this way. I want you to charge them to stop, and I want you to charge them to change their thinking, to repent. That's what it means, to change the way they think, and to stop. And how are you going to do that? Tell them to stop, and then teach them the truth. Correct them. Correction is teaching the truth. When people refuse the truth, either in doctrine or in behavior, they are to be charged again for disobeying the word. And when they don't want to listen to Christ or the apostles, they're to be treated as an unbeliever. See, church discipline happens every day in our fellowship. Some of you are doing it and don't even know. Loving correction, intimate correction, that's what discipline means, for the betterment of the person. If we eat healthy, that's discipline. If we work out, that's discipline. If we read and gain knowledge, that's discipline. If someone helps us through sin or through a hard time, that's discipline. If someone corrects us because they love us, that's discipline. Discipline happens every single day in our congregation. And 99% of the time, I don't even know about it. And then months or years down the road, you know, me and so-and-so, I'll be talking to somebody, and they'll say, yeah, me and so-and-so, man, we had, a little, we had a little spat outside in the parking lot. Or we were at the huddle house, and we got a little heated. But we loved each other, and we worked through it, and everything's good. I'm like, well, praise the Lord. And that's how mature Christians deal with it. And when reconciliation doesn't happen, Relationships move on. Why? Because we're not bound to carry disobedient people in our lives. As much as I love my children, they're not going to run a narcotics operation out of my basement. I don't have a basement, but I did in Virginia. And that happened. So what did I do with that young man? I put him in the penitentiary. Where is he today? Serving 20 years. Hardest thing I ever did. Not going to happen. Because you're not going to bring my whole household down for your $500 a week. See, the culture, the norms, the actions, the history sometimes has dictated so much of what we say and how we live that I think it has invaded, and I hate to use the word invaded, but it has invaded the, the thinking of how we approach the scripture. See, we're stewards of righteousness, the very glory of God displayed, written down, commanded, and then also lived out. We are stewards of righteousness. So when we want to teach without understanding, you ever met a teacher that didn't have understanding? Are they usually the ones to tell you they don't know what they're talking about? No, they make what? Confident assertions. So every wrong teacher will be confidently assertive. Now that doesn't mean everyone who's confidently assertive is a wrong teacher. <laughs> all tribbles are trebles, but not all tribbles are tribbles. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. We're, we're never going to get the false teachers, those who are living and teaching wrongly, to say, you know what, I, I'm just confidently, I'm confident in this, but I, I'm, I might be wrong. That's not confidence. They know they're right. They know they're honoring God. They know that they are called by God to do what they're doing, but they aren't. How do we know? The same way James Tippins knows, when he daydreams about a whole bunch of stuff that could be good theology, when he opens the Bible and he tests it and he goes, ah, man, that would have been a good book. You ever come up with a, a, a thought and you thought, the world needs to hear this. Got to write a book. I've got a dozen of those ideas, you know, just in the last two years. And there's already a book been written, and I need to tend to that one. If my commentary and writing is necessary for the understanding of Scripture, then something's wrong with the Bible. It doesn't mean that you can't write a book. Please do, but not me. It would, it would be a railroad accident. We're stewards of righteousness, and we are to live it out. What is this righteousness? Well, the Scripture talks about righteousness, doesn't it? The Scripture talks about righteousness, and righteousness is rightness. Rightness is goodness. Goodness is separateness. You know what the word holy means? 
The word holy means different than everything else. There, there, there's, a, there's an elementary school definition of the word holy. So if God is holy, that means he's different than everything else. He's apart from it. He's separate. He didn't separate himself. He is separate from everything else. So much so that he actually created everything else that is. He established it and purposed it. So God is not just separate, separate. He's separate, separate, separate. He's apart, apart, apart. He's set apart, set apart, set apart. He's so different that he's unique in and of himself. And that's why the scripture says, he says, I alone am God and there is no other. There is no other God but me. That means there is no other highest of all things but I. See, God is not his name and it's not his title. It's what he is, the highest of all things. There's only one richest person in the world. And over the last few weeks, it's not the Facebook guy. <laughs> because, I mean, you could have people that are tied, but I bet if you look down deep, there's probably a few cents difference. There's only one highest. And only one God. Only one holiness. Only one righteousness. The Bible says that righteousness in and of itself is a display of God. Not only is it a display of His essence. See, God's holiness is an intrinsic display of His worthiness. Because He is so set apart. He's so different. How are we to approach something so different? Through Jesus Christ, who is also God, who is also set apart, who is also holy because He is God. You see why we've got to be careful with our Trinitarian explanations? And so righteousness is God. Is God's revelation, God alone in redemption, the actions of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, all the things that the Bible teach concerning Him, this is righteousness. And then God Himself teach through the apostles certain ways in which the Bible believing children are supposed to go, okay, God, you've saved us, so what? Now what? To the praise of your glorious grace. How do we praise your glorious grace? By loving one another in word and deed. And sacrificing ourselves for the sake of one another. And looking after not just our own interests, but the interests of others. And that also is righteousness. But what does that righteousness do? It points back to the true righteousness of God. I mean, there's a reason Paul says that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we are becoming, not in a progressive way, but in a promise. In a powerful way, God is granting the promise. He granted the promise of righteousness. We can't be righteous. We can't work out righteousness to a certain degree to where now all the evil and the sin that we've ever been or committed or ever will commit will be bottom-heavy and it'll flip, and righteousness will be the standard. It doesn't work that. It's not a scale. You violate the law, which was written so that you may know that you're a violator. Written that it may punish the violator. Why? Because that's righteousness. It's wicked for a man to work and not get paid. So we get paid what we work. We get paid for what we are owed, and that payment is death. Because we are not righteous. The word sin by definition means to not be as God is. Think about that. Technically, well, I mean, maybe in a literal, missing the target. What's the target? God Himself. Are we God Himself? No. Have we been made to be like God Himself? No. We are declared to be as God is in righteousness because Jesus Christ in His righteousness, even in His humanity, has done the work of redemption, satisfied the wrath of the Father in righteousness. Romans 3, the righteousness of God is displayed in the law and the prophets. It's a shadow, but the true righteousness of God is seen in the death of Jesus Christ, His Son, who He put forth as a satisfaction of His wrath to be received by faith. That he may be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So we're stewards of righteousness when we're stewards of the gospel. We're stewards of righteousness when we're stewards of the story. We're stewards of righteousness when we're stewards of God's redemption. Of the word. 
And we're stewards of righteousness because we are the righteousness of God in Christ. The aim of our charge is love. How? It is instructed as teaching, as doctrine to us. <laughs> this is doctrine. A pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. James says that love... James says that if we don't have love, that our faith is dead. He says that. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. When there's no variation or shadow due to change of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every person, brothers, beloved of God, this is James writing in chapter 1, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not display it. But yet God's anger displays his righteousness, and his anger was poured out on Jesus Christ, the righteous. And there is no anger to be poured out and wrath to be poured out upon his people because of it. Therefore, Put away all filthiness. Put away rampant wickedness. And receive the meekness, the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. Doers of the word, be, not hearers alone. For if you are, you deceive yourself. If anyone's a hearer and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of grace, the law of freedom, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, there's a, a, a reward, which is our joy in this life. There's a reward, which is our intimacy. There's a reward, which is our steadfastness that God grants us through trials when we are subject to the doctrine of Christ in the application of life. And most of us fail in this. Praise the Lord, it has nothing to do with our redemption. Praise God that if we are just the most cantankerous complainer in the world and we hate the very left foot that we walk with, that only Christ alone is our righteousness. But we are misery, walking on two legs. And we know what that's like. We've all been there. Some of us may be there this morning. And the reason that our joy is not complete is because we don't have the mind of Christ in living, which is ours in Him. Philippians. So James, James says that, you know, faith without love is just dead faith. Peter says... To have love or your faith is unfruitful and ineffective. Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, a sincere faith, who called us into His own glory and excellence. Sovereign grace, by which He has granted us to, his, uh, to us His precious and very great promises, eternal life, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, glorification, the promise of eternality having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. For this very reason that you have been saved by sovereign and free grace, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly love, and brotherly love with love. For if these qualities are yours and are growing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful or worthless in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we can be born again and be worthless. We can be born again and be wicked. We can be born again and live in sin. Because we're not listening. And we're, most of all, we're not listening to the commandment to love one another. And we're all guilty of this. Whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted. They're not looking. He's so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So, you see, that way we know this is not about 
evangelism. It's not about becoming a child of God or being born as a child of God. That's, you know, the Spirit of God regenerates. That's how one is a child of God, according to John 3. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and the election of Christ. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And we could go on and on and on, but what does he say down in chapter, chapter um, that, that's chapter 1 of Second Peter, verse 16. He tells them to stir one another up. And to hold fast to this that he's been teaching and to do what he's telling them to do. Obey the doctrine of Christ in its application. And then he reaffirms the very thing Paul's going to do with Timothy. He reaffirms the authority by which they speak. And that is that we know these things because we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For we, when, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne by the Spirit of the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then Peter starts to talk about what? False prophets. Who would teach the church teaching that's not congruent with who Christ is and what he accomplished, or teaching that's not congruent with Christ's commands to the apostles of how the church should be. We don't get to pick. We can't obey the gospel and disobey the commands. Because if we do, that's antinomianism. But when we do, we're not lost. And when we do obey, it doesn't assure our place before the Father. But it sure does keep our conscience clear. It sure does establish a joy. So this is Peter says that you're fruitless. John says, and we don't have to go through 1 John because we've already read it, but John says if you don't love, then your faith is a lie. And we know that he's not saying you're lost. He's saying you're lying. I love the Lord. No, you don't. I know, the lo- I know that God is love. No, you don't. How do, you know- how do we know that you know that God is love? Because you love. And you obey the commands in Scripture. All believers are being taught the teaching of Christ. Doctrine of Christ. That must be heeded. We will not find ourselves in the judgment of God if we don't, but we will find ourselves outside the community of faith. And, of course, we can all go find another community of faith that we can snow or lie to or whatever. There are many of opportunities of unbiblical communities. And we may very well be one if we're not careful. But these teachers, what have they done? They swerved from, the, from this in the name of Christ. And teachers that swerve away, they swerve around. You know how certain people that don't know the gospel, they won't preach John 6? They'll preach half of John 15. They'll just skip the whole chapter 9 of Romans. <laughs> they never go to the prophets, especially Malachi. They can't handle that. They won't go to Ezekiel either, or they'll make an object lesson out of it. Yeah, the Walking Dead, here we go, series, 15 weeks, bring your crossbows. I mean, oh, beloved, people who don't believe the authority of Scripture skip the therefores. People who don't believe the authority of God's provision in and of and about the local community of faith, the assembly, they skip those teachings because they don't think they're relevant. And a majority of those people who don't want that aren't in a local assembly anyway because they want to hear interesting and sound, repetitive doctrinal positions without the instruction. You can't be part of the local assembly if you deny those things. 
So teachers who swerve from these teachings in the name of Christ are just jokes. They're just jokes. But they're the ones who would say not to listen to this. Well, listen up, beloved. You don't have to listen to me. There's nothing I can do about it. But if you're going to live and love one another here, you'll listen to Christ. James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. <laughs> For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many, many ways. We sin and fall. But if anyone does not stumble in what he says, and this is, this is hyperbole, if you will, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. I mean, you think about it. Beloved, you, you who are married and you who are, have, have children, children. I mean, what's the number one catalyst to World War III in the home? The mouth. I mean, sometimes how I looked at my mom and rolled my eyes, it, it caused a little skirmish. But for the most part, if I just shut up, took the correction... Didn't take offense. It's funny that the Bible teaches us to do those things, right? Don't take offense. I'm mad for the name of Christ. No, you're not. You're selfish. You're selfish and you're an infant. That's what we are. We're selfish and we're an infant when we cannot resolve to just relax. And beloved, I'm talking about myself. Okay? I'm not pointing. I don't have a list of all the infants over here and I've got your name on it. and The childish behavior. I don't have a list in the back of my Bible of where you fit. I don't know where you fit. I assume most, if not all of you, are more mature than me in other areas of life, in some areas of life, in all areas of life. And, beloved, you probably think the same of me. If we were all get together, we'd probably be shocked that we're all recipients of grace and we're floating on by a thread. And that thread is strong because it's the hand of Christ. A perfect man. Yet some will tell things or instruct on spiritual matters, and they may be right at times, yet they're not disciplined, and they don't lead and function with patience the things that are taught from God and from Christ, namely His tender sheep who scatter like the wind when they're fearful. If we aren't careful as teachers, the one who teaches the church must be careful, must be careful not to cause the church to fear. I'm going to say that, and I want you to hear it. It doesn't mean we ignore things or we don't teach hard things or we don't get on to one another every now and then because it's necessary. But we don't make the church scared. For that's counter, not intuitive, that's antichrist. Let's just call it what John calls it. When we undermine the love of God for his people and the power and the sufficiency of God's promises and we place all the outcomes of purity in the life of the people who think they're at war and they want to fight and do things in the flesh, then we are saying God is not sovereign. The word of God is not true. And we know better than he. Where does that sound come from? The garden. 1 Corinthians 13. You know it. Sincere faith. We know what love is. We, we've talked about sincere faith. Let me just remind us of what we need to understand in the context of sincere faith. Sincere faith rests. It's given by God, by the grace, by the power, the love of God, in the truth of Christ, effectual redemption for His people. Resting faith. Sincere faith knows by the way of God Himself, the Spirit, according to the context of the teaching of Scripture, who He is. And beloved, we can be led astray by well-meaning teachers. A sincere faith learns the whole counsel of Christ and all the doctrines of Christ, not just the theological ones, but the practical ones that speak volumes about one's own understanding of the gospel and speak volumes about one's own preparation for ministry. Sincere faith lives out the truth that is learned according to the Scripture. Sincere faith understands that we are stewards and that the life that we have is not our own. But it's been given to us according to the command of Christ. We've been purchased. A sincere faith is silent when it's threatened. A sincere faith is rested when it's persecuted. A sincere faith listens and learns. James chapter 1. 
at all times, 2 Peter chapter 3. A sincere faith has the mind of Christ and rests in the sufficiency of his promises, not in the power of our godly provision to be bold and expressive. Sincere faith does not make concession with the truth, but it disavows error with patience and in love. Any other doctrine, it does not stand for, but it stands against it by the truth of Scripture, not the debate and the argument and the anger. Those with a sincere faith understand the warning. The deception comes at times and trips up the regenerate children of God. We do get tripped up and God has ordained all that has come to pass. And when we are not about the business of serving and learning, then we can be tripped up. But when we are serving and learning and, I'll be honest with it, according to what I read in the Bible, we're doing well. We should watch out. We should not be deceived. God is not mocked. All those things that pop into our mind. We do not need to share our mind and knowledge with the Antichrist. We do not need to express all these revelations of the teachings of demons and all the cults and everything that is going on, acting as if we tell everybody about all these things, then we're saving them from the error. No, we're actually teaching them the error. There are many people who are experts, whole congregations who are experts of error and heresy and cults, but they don't know the gospel at all. They can recite it, but they can't live it. Nonsense. Nonsense. We don't have time for that, beloved. God does not need us. He's fine by himself. He'll bring about his promises and his discipline when we disobey. He will bring us back to the fruitfulness of our faith. He will cause us gently like a loving father that he is to see and know the way. And sometimes people make the bed that they lie in and they want somebody else to drag them out of it. Well, beloved, that's not our call. That's not our call. Confident assertions. Oh, beloved, if we're to make confident assertions about anything, let it be of grace. Let it be of the finished work of Christ and all that He is and all that He has done for us. Let our confident assertions be clear that all that we are has been carried out by God and that His promises are enough and they stand firm. We don't, God does not need us to act outside what He's commanded us to do in His Scripture, but He needs us to trust Him, to trust Him. Because he's shown himself to be trustworthy. It's not even how strong our faith is or how strong our resolve is or how bold we might think we should be. It's about the boldness and the strength and sincerity and the finished work of Jesus Christ who is the faithful one. So that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny us. Beloved, we cannot even have the fear of our own reprobation is not enough to snatch us out of the hand of Christ. Think about that. No matter, no matter what. False teaching cannot snatch you out of the hand of Christ. Divisions cannot snatch us out of the hand of Christ. Nothing can snatch us out of the hand of Christ. Because we've been purchased. He did not buy us. And there is no... He did not buy us so that we could be refunded. There's no refund. We're stuck with Him. And He's stuck with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You came to save sinners, that You sent Your Son to save sinners. And as we'll see in, as we continue to read this letter, Lord, that all of us are sinners. Jesus came to die for the blasphemers and the liars and the wicked. He did not come for the righteous. And He does not stand with the self-righteous today. He stands opposed to them. So, Lord, humble us in all ways, at all times, even when it feels impossible to stand. Lord, humble us. And Father, I pray that as we move into this new season as a, as a family, Lord, that we would be gentle with one another and patient. 
and not write each other off just because even if we are not part of our fellowship anymore, even if discipline has been exercised, Lord, let us not just write each other off as reprobates. But, Father, to do the work of an evangelist, to teach the truth and to rest knowing that you will work it all out for your purposes and that nothing we do or say, no argument we make is going to make a difference because, Father, only your Spirit blowing where it wishes will cause your people to come to know the truth. So as we partake of the Lord's table and as we make prayers for each other, we thank you that you hear us. Guard our hearts in Christ. Amen.